The RCR shop has great gift ideas. From great looking tees, hoodies, caps, tote bags, bumper stickers and more. The RCR shop is now open at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash shop. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Shane Jones is New Zealand First Cabinet Member, Minister for Oceans and Fisheries, Minister for Regional Development, Minister for Resources, Associate Minister of Finance, Associate Minister for Energy. We spoke to Shane before the election. He's back on RCR Breakfast right now. Shane Jones, good to have you back. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. What's it like to be back? Well, we had three years of banishment uh, in the desert. And um, as a consequence of some... On a horse with no name. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Right. Um, America was a great band, mate. (laughs) They were, and it it wasn't their first rodeo either. No, um, no, no, no. So anyway, yeah, we're back. Uh, Look, a sense of um, vindication. And obviously our leader, Winston, he affected a a really um, robust coalition set of negotiations and now we're into the work program. When that came together, those special votes were counted. You, you kind of knew that you were in the zone, but you didn't know for sure. That wasn't too long ago. What were your feelings? What did you think? How far do you think did you think at the time that that it could go? Yes. Well, we knew that when the specials were going through the process of being counted there was a long-term trend that favoured the left. Right. But we knew that the margin that we had uh, with the 2.3 million or whatever that had already been counted, that it was extraordinarily unlikely that we would lose a seat and go down. Uh, So that wasn't really the level of uh, anxiety. Uh, What we were really focused on was ensuring that we could um, deliver as much as our manifesto as possible, because after all, mate, it's a set of negotiations. And um, they were quite extraordinary negotiations because there were three parties involved. Hmm. And, you know, as a lesson in negotiations, when you are the smaller party, time is your friend. Right. And secondly, there's a great analogy uh, that comes out of the... um, the, the share market, uh, when someone wants to take something over and there's a small but blocking shareholder, at the end of the day, you have to pay their price. Yep. Okay. That's a good reminder. All right. Let's. Can we just get something out of the way because it's the White Hot story now, um, and that is the whistleblower arrest. And, um, and I'm just wondering, because of the – inquiry that we've been excited about. Are there any implications, do you think, for this inquiry, given the way this whistleblower data has been released? Look, we're confident that um, the inquiry will be both both very professional. It will be robust. Uh, there, will, there will be an international dimension to it. Yeah. Uh, I'm loathe to go into too many details because that specific issue is before the court. And um, I think, however that once the inquiry gets underway, it will have the necessary authority to ensure that whatever information needs to be dredged out of the system will be provided into a legitimate forum 
and some robust decisions can be made as to the, uh, quite frankly, the durability of a lot of the assertions that have been made coming out of um, COVID. Do they still stack up? But more importantly, restoring a sense of um, legitimacy to people's lives. Hmm. I mean, let's face it, uh, people tend to move on and put um, put bleak memories to the past, but we're talking about a formidable amount of debt that was incurred coming out of the COVID experience. There are some searing lessons as to uh, which of our liberties may have been taken for granted. So that's why New Zealand First, we campaigned not only on an inquiry, but in ensuring that it wasn't a Clayton's inquiry, which in my view, much of the uh, Royal Commission um, agenda that was set up by the last government. And the fact that one of the members has recently left, the former minister, Hekia Parata. Okay, I had to ask that because a lot of our listeners have a, a lot invested in that and they, want, they, they wanted to know, I think, particularly that there wasn't any threat to that running as, as they would hope. Okay, so now... Some of these things you've done before in government, what, out of the list I mentioned at the start, what turns you on the most? Oh, look, at uh, I'm excited to be the uh, Natural Resources Minister. That's mining. Um, that uh, was, was something that I was encouraged by uh, Winston Peters to take on. And why am I excited? Because New Zealand sits on a rich endowment of natural resources, including... Uh, minerals both here and in the ocean. And I, I really want to move on from that period of stigmatization that's taken root in New Zealand over the last 20, 30 years. Mm. That mining is a dirty industry. Mining doesn't have a legitimate place in a modern economy. I want to defang that. I want to boot that to Coventry because I'm sick to death of seeing my own young people from our Maori communities pack up all go to Kalgoorlie or such places and dig up Australia, yet we've got companies in New Zealand who are struggling to maintain or secure legitimate interests to uh, continue to pursue investments and create jobs and wealth in New Zealand. And I know it's a controversial area, but I think it's time for a massive reset in New Zealand. And let's not allow the shrill kind of... Um, negative doomsday voices in, in, in the climate change activist community thwart our ability to grow the economy. What are we, wealth-wise, what are we potentially, can you quantify it? What are we missing out on? Well, the most um, interesting thing of the portfolio that I'm keen on are rare earth minerals such as vanadium, and um, that's um, really important for not only the toughening of steel, but for a lot of modern technology. And quite frankly, the value, mate, of those rare earth minerals is, is infinite. When you consider that China uh, and other such far-flung places control a lot of the supply, if we have it in New Zealand, not only should we be busily exploring for it, but we need a robust and, 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 and really well-heeled set of enterprises that can generate money and wealth from them. And uh, I'm loath to uh, put a value on those rare earth minerals, but you only have to look at any daily financial newspaper to see how much wealth has been generated from other parts of the world. And if they're here in New Zealand, let's go and look for them. Now, I've got to tell you, 
It might be said that such minerals are in the Dock Estate. Well, a third of the land we regard as the Dock Estate is actually not dock land. It's called stewardship land. And that land came from the old days when we uh, morphed from Muldoonism into Rogenomics, and they didn't know what to do with the land, so they gave it to a newly formed organization called the Department of Conservation. It used to be in the Lands and Survey. And as far as I'm concerned, as the mining minister, that land is not core dock land. And if there's minerals on that land, then we need to explore the most efficient way to enable New Zealanders to derive wealth from such um, such extractive activities. The other parties in this coalition are behind you on that? Well, I just direct all your listeners to the coalition agreement. Right. And um, there are a set of steps that have been signed off. And they now work, uh, represent the work program of our government. Um, also, um, it may not be widely known, but we're pursuing a fast track statutory process to ensure that projects in New Zealand aren't held ransom to by tiny, unelected, unmandated uh, uh, environmental activist groups who have uh, joined up with some of my relations in the muddled, adult hapu community. We don't want those people uh, feeling they have an infinite mandate to frustrate and hold the rest of the country to ransom. Nowhere is that more evident than in the attempt to create and boost a better set of roading outcomes at Mount Messenger north of Taranaki, where that project has grown by $200 million because of the ongoing uh, frustrating and um, uh, um, objection uh, activities. Minister or Associate Minister for Energy, our um, listeners have, um, they do a lot of thinking about our ability to be self-sufficient in energy, and that's fossil fuel, obviously, and I'm heading towards the refinery here. So um, I haven't read every policy detail, but I have to ask on behalf of the audience, will we see that national strategic physical asset ready to do the work it might need to do for us at any time in this uncertain world. (laughs) Okay, I just want to step back. Uh, The first thing that we're doing is we're getting rid of the oil and gas ban in New Zealand. Right. So oil and gas will now be restored to a position of legitimacy in the modern New Zealand economy. We are no longer going to consume the Kool-Aid that was spread around and spilt everywhere by Jacinda Ardern. That's the first thing. That's designed to encourage investors, both in New Zealand and overseas, to regard New Zealand once again as a reliable, safe, dependable place to put money and effort into. It will be very hard for us to restore that level of credibility, but we must give our uh, we must give of our best to achieve that. Hmm. That will then ensure that we can keep our lights on in New Zealand, because. This pipe dream that the Labour Party had by 2030, the entirety of our energy system would be powered by renewable energy, overlooks um, a a hidden activity, which is our reliance on coal in order to keep the lights on via the Genesis-owned Puntley power station. That activity is a legitimate, proper part of a modern electricity system. And we've got to stop the agendas, and we've got to challenge those um, Pharisees out of the climate movement who insist 
that we're sending ourselves to hell by continuing to burn gas and rely on coal uh, in the short to medium term future to keep our electricity system intact. So that's a further change in right. terms of resilience. On the question of Marsden Point, work will take place early in the new year to ensure, firstly, that we have a fuel resilience issue. And if it requires more storage and tank capacity, because what actually happened is that uh, Megan Woods and the Labour Party did not uh, take on the large oil companies. They basically bought into the notion that uh, the removal of uh, refining capacity from Marston Point didn't represent a downgrade of our resilience. That's not the view that my leader Winston Peters and I have. So uh, boosting uh, fuel uh, storage to add to our resilience and then actually start to uh, get the facts together, mate, as to what is the state of the decommissioning process, because sadly it's a state, It's not a state-owned asset. That's mm, mm. an asset that's owned by the fuel companies, and I have a meeting with the CEO coming up in the near future to begin uh, amassing the facts, because there's no point me on behalf of the taxpayers guaranteeing anything until we understand how many billions of dollars will it take yep. and what damage to date has been done. Now, if I made an open-ended commitment without being aware of the fiscal... No, no, cost, fair enough. The next thing your, uh, your, your listeners would be saying, oh, that square-headed idiot from Kaitar, he's spending our money without doing the homework. Yeah, but um, um, people want to know that that's in some sort of process, I think, and not sort of stalled out. Yeah, right? so if you look at our coalition agreement, that is clearly identified as a key area of work. And as the um, Associate Minister of Energy, I've already kicked off with the officials some initial work, but I personally am going to go up there and see the CEO and to ensure that we have the facts of the matter as we move forward. But I thoroughly understand that it represents a blow to our resilience. And then we've got to identify in the event of you know geopolitical uncertainty, how can we become more and more self-resilient. It's a very bleak day when the last government allowed the oil companies to close down that refinery. Yeah, the Straits of Hormuz get closed for a bit and we've we got a problem, right? Yeah, well, I don't want to sort of um, bring um, a sort of dark cloud on our country, but there is already quite a, a high level of instability on a regular basis as to the passage of shipping mm. through mm. parts of Asia. And let's face it, where's you know where are we getting this um, fuel from at the moment? It's south Southeast Asia. That's where it's coming from. Where's the nearest refinery? It's in Brisbane. Huh. Sadly, well, we know where it used to be. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Associate Minister of Finance. Um, news yesterday that um, there's some kind of financial hole. What state are we in? Do you know much about our the state of this economy? Can you tell us? Well, the um, uh, next week, um, our finance minister will be releasing, I think it's next week, uh, a whole lot of fish, uh, official information about the state of the finances. And I, th I think most of us know that there's been pressure on our revenue. By, um, and we're going to have to tighten the belt, obviously. The prime minister and the minister of finance have already identified that belt tightening will be essential throughout Wellington. But what we've got to do as well, mate, we've got to grow the economy. We've got to rediscover and own again an economic growth 
agenda not hobbled and not undermined by these extraordinarily apocalyptic uh, visions about climate change. I mean, there's five million of us, okay? And sure, I'm a great supporter of a climate adaptation. Volatile weather is wreaking a lot of damage in terms of our infrastructure. But I am not a believer in um, all of these unrealistic ambitions that uh, were floated by the last regime that somehow we're going to be able to take a leading role in mitigation with the rest of the world. We've got to make sure that our own economy is resilient, our infrastructure is improved, and we can adapt to the volatile weather. That's what I'm going to be judged on in the next three years as a regional minister. The bureaucracy, how much of that culture is also that we're just talking about, you know, is in the bureaucracy. And could that be like dragging an anchor along potentially? Yes. So the bureaucracy obviously at its top level is going through a transition where they're coming to terms with the fact that this is a new regime. This is a regime that, does not want every social policy put through the lens of the Treaty of Waitangi, does not want every economic decision second-guessed by the Climate Change Commission and their, uh, and their chairman. We want to rediscover um, within the bureaucracy the ability to come up with not, a, not so much plans, but responses that free the ability of the private sector to do what it knows how to do best, which is to actually make investments, generate economic activity, keep people employed, and boost our overseas income. It's a lot. It's you know, it's a long time since we've had a bureaucracy that is so outward focused. I can positively report the people who I have a bit to do with have well and truly got that memo. Um, are there any in the service that have been waiting for this change and and kind of? biding their time? I mean, well, I think, I think yeah. there are, in the areas that I'm going to be active, which is um, the fishing, the aquaculture, the mining, the oil, the gas, the broad natural resource sector, there's no shortage of officials who have watched and lamented the, um, the, the decline of our ability to use our resources in an efficient way, in a way that doesn't um, hopelessly degrade the environment, but actually focuses on making our nation resilient, keeping more Kiwis living in New Zealand, earning good dough, and sustaining rural communities who day by day, week by week, are watching too many of their people disappear to Aussie because it's easier to get a job in natural resources in Australia than it is in New Zealand. That's an indictment. So the other lot didn't, understand this didn't understand that there was a a steady constriction of wealth going on the opportunities were being taken away how did they think it would work well the last prime minister both of those prime ministers are career are careerists they're yeah. career politicians but it's, it's common sense really, isn't it yeah well for you and i and your listeners it's common sense Look, if we can grow the New Zealand economy by 1%, that's another $3.3 billion. Right. And you take a third of that, which is a billion dollars, and that's fresh revenue to the Crown, either to pay down debt or to um, 
uh, to to contribute towards um, the, um, the 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 new tax policy that's coming forward um, in the not too distant future, all recycled into frontline services. Now, I know you've made reference to the fact that the bureaucracy's got to be trimmed and they've got to be really focused and efficient, but mate. Over the long-term fortunes of uh, however long, long you and I remain as a part of the mortal coil, we need to grow the economy. Hmm. How much can you do in the time that you can see ahead, do you think? Well, we're keen to move towards a four-year term, but that can never happen until Kiwis uh, perhaps have a higher level of trust that we as politicians deserve a longer period of time before they can um, swing the axe. Mm-hmm. They narrowly miss us or dispatch us to uh, Coventry. Right. But um, I, I think with the uh, fast-track legislation that we have in mind for natural resources purposes, uh, you'll find that we'll be able to get a hell of a lot done. Um, I, I'm very confident that all of my colleagues uh, have got the memo that we need to strip out from the various government departments um, unwise expenditure, uh, unsustainable expenditure and identify at a structural level where the main cost drivers are so that we get back to not so much um, an austere set of um, social and economic circumstances. That's just being pushed around by our opponents from the Green Party, but something that enables the state to take a more facilitating role, not only helping those in Strugglers Gully, but to grow the economy. I'm reading from a staff story here. And the headline is, could it be Shane Jones versus the Reserve Bank? And uh, there's some commentary on the bombastic personalities of yourself and the governor, Adrian Orr, and that there's some concern, apparently, how you might approach the bank um, in this term. What what are their worries or what are the worries, do you think? What, what are these concerns, do you think? Well, we are going to have a slick committee inquiry into the banking industry and it's going to delve deeply into competitiveness and um, other and uncover uh, what might be the um, the ongoing well we know what a lot of the problems are anyway but in relation to Adrian Orr I can faithfully comment I've known him for over 30 years and um, in the event that I'm, I'm ever engaging with him uh, it'll be highly professional it may very well be robust but it's not going to spill out um, like a public bar brawl. Okay. Well, we'll be watching for that not to happen. All right. The Public Interest uh, Journalism Fund. What do you make of, would you call it the adolescent kind of media meltdown that we've seen in the last short period in response to some of the comments that Winston made about bribery, et cetera? It's like they doth protest too much sort of feel to it. you got any comments to make about that? And then I'm going to ask you where you see broadcasting going. Well, I stand a thousand percent with what our leader said. Um, we got um, bugger all coverage from the mainstream media during the run-up. I mean, they will try to argue the converse. We were hammered mercilessly by Radio New Zealand with a string of unfounded, unproven allegations related to our fundraising from three, four, five years ago. Those issues uh, were by and large dismissed by the court. Never one single apology, virtually no coverage 
from those same people that were um, screaming or uh, screaming out um, perfidy as if they were some sort of uh, political alligators themselves. So for those who slung it in that vein, don't be surprised if we've got long memories. In relation to uh, broadcasting going forward, obviously it's an issue as to whether or not the advertising dollars that have gone to these larger players, Google and others, and I understand Willie Jackson had some legislation either in place, no, no, not in place, certainly not operational, but obviously the um, the the economic model for the mainstream media needs to change. But how they manage that, it's really a matter largely for their owners, but more importantly, tell news, share stories that are relevant to the lives of the garden variety Kiwi. And then you may not be surprised to know more and more people will flock to listen to what you have to say. But if you continue to parrot as they did with Jacinda over the um, the COVID experience, people grew tired. They lost confidence. But more importantly, they predicted exactly what would be reported in an indiscriminate, uncritical way of how Jacinda and that regime trounced our liberties during the days of COVID. It was bribery, though, wasn't it? Ready to use a raw word. I mean, I've got a colleague, well-known, Peter Williams, who was his future was made untenable at a particular network because he wanted to interview one person. Oh, I can give, even go further. Peter Jackson, the editor of our local newspaper, The Northland Age, um, wanted to run an article or ran an article by John Banks, if I'm mm. not mistaken, and it created such a furore um, in the owner of that newspaper, which also owns the Herald, and these people have consumed um, the woke ale. And the woke ale now is giving them a headache because the garden variety Kiwis not interested any more woke, uh, wokeism. And I can tell you as a Māori in the Māori world, the, 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 the woke mania has done a lot of damage and confused a lot of the young people as to what it means to have a Māori identity. They've they've infused it with all this climate change hysteria, all this American culture war wokeism. And um, the sooner that the media walk away from that, the better. Um, as this plays out today, the Te Pāti Māori are promising protests around the country, and you know they're saying that they're going to delay people and cause... Uh, constrain people's movements, I guess, on the roads, et cetera, to make a point. And the point is that you're um, burning down the whare, I think is what Tuku Roy Rangi Morgan said. So is this another kind of tantrum like the media had? Are we going to see a – do you think we're going to see a a bit of this and then what settles down? Yeah, I I don't understand fully the message that's driving them to um, blight the – daily lives of Kiwis, I, I, I think that um, a lot of it is puffery. But the types of changes that um, New Zealand First wants to take place, it's akin to cleaning out the Augean stables of Wellington. A lot of the Māori nomenclature, a lot of the excesses around how you apply the treaty, it's been run out of Wellington. And those seeds have been sown by a tiny unaccountable minority within Maridom. And they've um, they've had the, the run of the cutter. 
for the last three years. Well, Winston and I and a few others are back, and we want that narrative to change to getting back to identifying the issues that unite us as Kiwis, integrating our efforts so we project a formidable presence overseas, knowing that we've got a resilient performing economy back home and we're not continually scratching at each other and the other thing to bear in mind that um, the Māori Party are pushing, they're pushing a type of victimhood and they conveniently overlook the importance of agency or self-responsibility and uh, the term rangatiratanga which is a bit of a tongue twister but it comes out of the treaty and it, it really means authority taking responsibility for yourself this, and, and, and that is a very legitimate debate to have in New Zealand, and this government wants to swing back towards that ethos. Another large concern, I know we're bouncing around here a bit, but uh, to, for our listeners is what's happening in the schools, right, particularly in primary schools, um, and that's covered in the coalition agreement. Um, in your mind, what, how fast can you move on that? Well, there's a host of things that are in the 100-day plan, and obviously choices have to be made. Uh, a number of changes are already taking place in relation to education. But look, people, um, your listeners will see evidence that we're getting um, the curriculum and um, the daily burden of school teachers back to the basics, back to brass tacks. And in our um, coalition agreement, there was a clear direction agreed to uh, and shared by all of the government. We are not having a situation where young children or indeed um, children on the verge of puberty uh, are, are being either brainwashed or we're introducing matters of what um, I call um, gender politics into schools at an inappropriate level. And there's the achievement levels. They're sad. I mean, disgraceful. The yeah, speed on dealing with that because we can't go on like that for too much longer. I've talked to Oliver Hartwich and other experts, and they're so concerned that we're going to flame our future prospects if we don't get on to that, like ASAP. Cameron Bagri, one of New Zealand's brightest economists, has said that the canary in the mine is the quality of educational outcomes currently being shown by our young people. And that trend is very negative. So um, our Minister of Education has already started in that regard. Um, she's given us a couple of briefings. Mm. And by that, I mean, um, I am talking about um, uh, Honourable Erica Stamford here. Yep. Uh, she's given us a number of briefings in terms of the pace at which reading, writing, numeracy can be reintroduced into schools every day. And now, sure, in some days it'll go up and down, but over a week and a month it remains at a steady level and a level that gives the kids um, better skills and equips them to quickly master those three outcomes because, hello, hello, that's what the competition is in the rest of the world. And if you're going to unlock all these opportunities for wealth creation, if you don't have the educated workforce and citizenry coming in behind that, it's just not going to work, is it? Well, you end up at with the scale anyway. You, you end up with unfettered immigration, and you're going to wake up one day and you know, are we even in our own country? And that's mm -hmm. because we are not 
driving enough um, incentive, motivation, and responsibility to Kiwis themselves. And I've seen this uh, in, 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 in a host of uh, ways. Over the years, we've allowed too many people to either go on the dole, remain on welfare, and essentially be on the scrap heap, and we are unable to dragoon them into action to grow the economy. Well, our government's interested, obviously, we've got to have immigration, but our government is interested in ensuring that that dead weight becomes very light over the next three years. Just to um, finish up then, and great chat, by the way, thank you for that. Um, that process of, of negotiation, uh, I mean, obviously you weren't leading it, but you must have been involved in it and around it. What was that like? Well, the um, Winston is a masterful negotiator. Um, he's perfected the art of the long, protracted silence. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh. You may giggle because that's probably no, no. I get it. I get it. Wants to wants to hear. Yeah. Uh, that um, that that's a, a valuable technique, and as you've worked out, uh, Matua Shane's quite a garrulous character. And secondly, um, there was a period of time it took in order for um, all parties to appreciate that these were genuine negotiations, and that's why there's such great chemistry now between ourselves. Um, the leader of the National Party, our Prime Minister, and uh, I'm talking and and, and, and working regularly um, with the ACT Party. And look, I say to your listeners, the god of the god of politics is the god of wind. Okay, mm, and it's okay. almost like out of the Bible. You know, who knows where the wind comes from? Who knows where the wind goes? But it strikes you, and then it moves on. So, chemistry is good. Yeah, and I want your leaders, uh, sorry, your um, listeners to please um, take on board what I'm saying. The um, the chemistry is very robust, very robust. Last question. Rodney Hyde told me that if you guys don't have everything rocking by the start of February, you, you'll be always chasing it. Will you... Will you be in that position then? Well, there's 12 quarters before we're in the boxing ring again. And Rodney's making a very good point. By the end of February, we would have chewed through our first quarter. And what's that great saying, you know, begin as you hope to go on? Mm, and uh, I would just, I know everyone's busy and they probably aren't aware that there was publicly released a 100-day plan. But in that plan are some profound actions that uh, we're up for um, completing. Jane Jones, appreciate the time. Thanks for coming back on Reality Check Radio RCR. See you, mate. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio. Loving what you're hearing? Well, the establishment hates it. And right now, they're conjuring up new ways to try and censor RCR. To ensure you never miss a beat of the hard-hitting news you've come to know and love, make sure you're on the RCR mailing list. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.